Hi, friends. Welcome to Deep Dive, my brand new podcast born from a desire for critical thought, vulnerability, and awareness. I'm your host, Dana Falsetti, a thinker, a writer, a yoga teacher, an activist, an authenticity agent. Each month, you'll hear from me and my guests, ranging from iconic disruptors to everyday people, all candidly sharing our personal experiences on topics ranging from sexuality to social justice and consciousness to capitalism. Deep Dive is a space to tackle hard-hitting questions and controversial topics in a raw, empathetic, and curious way. And it's my space to rant and ramble freely, no holding back. Let's dive in. So, Thank you, friends, for joining me back here on Deep Dive Podcast. I've been a little bit MIA for the last week or two. I've actually been in a bout of kind of chronic migraines for a little while and um, starting to feel better now. So on that note, super excited for tonight's guest. I have Sonali Rashatwar. Am I saying that correctly? No. How, am I, how do I need to say it? <laughs> it's Sonali Rashatwar. Sonali Rashatwar. Okay. You got it. Sonali Rashadwar with me tonight, who I just found you on Instagram probably like six months ago, actually just before my departure from Instagram. And in those (laughs) short few months, um, I learned so much from you. And so I'm just, I feel so incredibly honored and privileged to have you on the podcast tonight. So thank you so much for being here. Oh my goodness. It is such an honor to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. So I'd love to start, and I'm sure you've talked about it a million times, but I I am sure that you didn't just arrive <laughs> to the place <laughs> we're in <laughs> now. <laughs> so I'd love to hear, I mean, wherever you feel like starting, but I'd just love to hear a little bit about your journey. And um, I'd love to hear a little bit about your childhood and just um, your experience with growing up um amongst diet culture and whatever else was playing a part as well. And then what your process was, um, even just taking the baby steps of starting to shift out of that. I know it's a really long process. Oh God, it'll never end. Yeah. Um, I'm still learning the ways that I'm carrying childhood trauma and actively still uh, using it in ways that inform my decision-making in my 30s. So for anyone who's just starting on in therapy or in coaching and understanding um, what they've been through as children, it's a lifelong process, um, especially for folks who end up parenting or having families where they impact little ones. Um, It's a forever process. But you're right. Um, I didn't just arrive on the scene. Um, (laughs) I have been more intentionally on Instagram, uh, I would say, in the last year. And when I say intentionally, I mean like creating political content for Instagram uh, that's consumable through Instagram. And and Instagram um, is a lot more visual. We like um, really vibrant graphic design that's very eye-catching and it gets really to the point. Um, and I had my I had come from Facebook where I was still doing political education in the same way, which feels very grassroots to me um, because it's going directly to the consumer, like the person on the other end who is using it, hopefully um, in in becoming a structural ambassador and tearing down systems in their own individual ways as like teachers or as like uh, parishioners at a church or in all the many ways that we take this information and do stuff with it. And Facebook, I had the luxury of like posting articles that other folks have written and then having like a dialogue and conversation. And it was a much smaller platform in that it was mostly uh, activists that I had met in person or like friends of them um, that we had met through social networks And I've been pretty active on Facebook for the last, like, uh, I'd say like 10 years in posting political education content on topics like not just limited to body image um, or fat positivity specifically and fat liberation, but topics that intersect fat liberation at the, let me see, at the the crossroads of uh, uh, anti-capitalism, supremacy, um, really big ideas and helping uh, folks understand, especially in activist spaces, helping folks in activist spaces give a shit about fat liberation Mm -hmm. and helping folks in fat liberation give a shit about like racial justice or like uh, classism. 
Um, so it's a great bridge that I exist on um, between those two worlds. I really like being in that place. I feel like a good translator. And um, on Instagram, I feel like it has become a great place for us to post body image uh, content, especially like therapeutic advice. It's a really great place for that. Mm-hmm. Very digestible, easily accessible. And what I'm learning is that folks really want to know who is the person behind the content creation. And it's really (laughs) difficult for me to feel like um, everything that I create, what am I trying to say? It's difficult for me to think that I am not in all the content that that I create. Like I create it because Uh, it is so deeply resonant with me. Like it is personal insight that I'm sharing for conclusions that I've come to because these are things that I'm grappling with. So like every single piece of content that I post is in some way a reflection of me, but folks Mm -hmm. are looking for personal narrative. Um, A lot of times folks ask like, you know, what kind of trauma have you survived in order to have an interest professionally in working with trauma? Mm. And, when folks ask, like, you know, how did you become a sexual assault counselor? Why did you become a therapist who specialized in working through body image issues? Um, the only, the primary reason is because I've survived those things. And therapy school has helped me to better understand myself. And in working with clients, of course, I offer whatever insight I've learned through therapy school, but it's always through the lens of me in better understanding my own shit yeah yeah so, absolutely oh, oh go ahead sorry right? no, no. no it's all right um as a kid i was first put on non-consensual diets starting when the age of eight nine and ten um, my parents probably spent uh, more than a hundred thousand dollars maybe even more than that who knows on mm-hmm. all kinds of dieting products uh, taking me to an Ayurvedic shaman who mm. like took my pulse with his hand and you know diagnosed me with some kind of like hormonal issue um, when he all he could see was visually that I was fat. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been on juice fasts and cleanses and um, have been served less at a dinner table when. My younger siblings are being served different types of food or are being served different amounts of food. Um, I've had my body policed in ways that are based on gender and uh, sexual orientation and gender expression and body size in ways that my younger siblings were not based on their more petite body size or their non-feminine gender presentation. All of that informs my anti-diet feelings now today all of those experiences inform my need for like militant body autonomy yeah (laughs) yeah I mean I'm I love the specific language that you're using I love that you said non-consensual diets and I would love to talk about that a little bit more that's something that resonates with me very much um as well, like my parents just sort of um, putting me through a lot of the diet culture games and, you know, Weight Watchers a million times. And um, I went to fat camp and, uh-huh. you know, all the things. And um, occasionally, um, I'm even thinking back to times when I was so kind of wrapped up in it, but then thinking of the concept of consent and how it's informed and what the context is. But even in times um, desiring uh, to go to fat camp or to go to Weight Watchers, still being informed by this fat phobic culture that's making me want to do that. And before that was happening, informed by, you know, my parents or guardians or however it applies um, without my consent to be on any kind of diet. Absolutely. Emotional manipulation was 100% how my parents got me to do any new diet. And it only stopped like when I was 22. That is how long it took for me to say, you know, never again. And 
the final straw was with weight loss surgery. And I was being pressured into weight loss surgery. I was not financially independent from my parents. And so money was one of the many tools that they used to control my body, my yeah. gender identity, sexual orientation, and, bo- and body size, of course. Um, and at 22, it was only when I had, I, had, I, had, I had met with like several doctors because in order to be cleared to have weight loss surgery, for anyone who doesn't already know, you have to see like a parade of doctors. Like you have to go and see um, a lung doctor, make sure your lungs are good. Uh, go to see a heart doctor, make sure that your heart is beating good. Go to see a, um, a gastroenterologist to make sure that your guts are good. Uh, make sure that poop's coming out good and um, food's going in good through your mouth. And I went through this process and I got checked by all of these doctors and through each one, <laughs> I would meet a different doctor and they were like, oh yeah, your, your heart's looking great. You're very healthy. You're healthy enough to have this surgery. Oh I'm my like, goodness. Hmm, fascinating. Hmm, interesting. Right. And then I go to the lung doctor and was like, oh, you look tip top. Your lungs are in great shape. And I was like, hmm, interesting. And then I get to the gastroenterologist and having a, an endoscopy. I'm having a colonoscopy, which is like, these are intensive procedures for a 22 yeah. year old to be having when like nothing else is really wrong with me. I'm just fat. And <laughs> they're like, oh, your colon looks great. No polyps, nothing. We checked all in there. And I'm like, if I am so healthy, if I'm so healthy enough to have the surgery, then why the fuck am I having the surgery? It does not make any sense. People are telling me that I am so fat that I'm unhealthy, but all my body parts are healthy. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> oh my gosh. It doesn't make any sense. And, and, and it's so traumatic. Like I'm, I'm sitting here just shaking my head, like at the amount of trauma it, it is to go through something like that when you don't even need it. And all of the complexes that come and how much time, a lifetime, as you said at the beginning, to undo everything that that leaves you with. Mm. And like all for what? All for like these standards also that people can make money. Like it's ridiculous. And the point that you made as well, just even about how, um, you know, the financial aspects of sort of like the reward system um, that people who have resources and parents who have resources will fall into this like, you know, I'll pay for the surgery. I'll buy you new clothes when you lose weight. There's rewards for every milestone. Yeah. Oh, totally. It was was completely emotional blackmail. Um, you're going to be able to get a great husband. Um, Mm -hmm. people are going to want to be around you or you're going to be successful in your career. And they frame it in this way. That's, that's like, you know, I care so much about you. That's why I'm doing this for you and to you. It's that I care too much. Mm -hmm. That's why it hurts me so much actually that I care this much. And that's actually still a form of emotional abuse because it, it is used as a tool to convince me to do things against my better judgment. And for it convinces me that, you know, you have my best interest in mind, which is it, usually true for most parents. Most parents have the best interest in mind of their children. But for me, in that case, it was not. And it was only when I had gone to see uh, the dietitian who had told me, like, I would only be able to eat a quarter cup of food at a time uh, for the rest of my life and that I might have fertility problems and that um, depending on the type of surgery, like forget it, fertility is out of the question, like conception's out of the question. And I would have a lifelong uh, issue with malnutrition because my GI tract would be amputated and I would have to mix protein powder into all of my food for the rest of my life because there's just not, there's no possible way to eat the quantity of food that my body would require in order to sustain this like willful amputation and a willful malnutrition. And my sister was the only one actually. I had like two queer friends who were also fat, thankfully, who were like, this is ridiculous. You cannot do this. And they helped talk me out of it. And my sister was, is this like, she's a thin woman. And she was concerned about the death rate, actually. Um, one in 200 die on the table, mm. which is alarming. That is an yeah. alarming number. And the numbers that they won't tell you in those 
it's like a seminar. They'll have like 50 people attend this like pre-surgical seminar to see who goes forward to continue on with the process. And in the seminar, they don't tell you the failure rate. And when I say failure, I mean the number of people who end up gaining weight, the weight back that they have lost initially from the weight loss surgery. Um, and I believe in set point theory. I believe that that mm-hmm. is why we gain the weight back. Our body is literally trying to survive family. Our body knows the weight that it wants to stay at. And that is why it will do whatever it can to survive that famine that we are inducing on our body right. to get back to the weight that it's meant to be. Well, and when we're making any of these alterations, whether it be something as extreme as weight loss surgery or whether it's like going on the next fat diet, you're um, convincing your body, right, that you're in like starvation mode. Your body reacts to these things. And if you believe in that set point theory, which I do as well, and if people don't know what that is, it's just, you know, if you gain weight, you lose weight, it's not going to matter because eventually your body's sort of natural cycle and equilibrium is going to catch back up with you. And so, like, all the drastic measures that get taken, all of the money that gets spent on um, all of these different outlets, everything that you've touched on, like, all for literally nothing for the person, (laughs) at least. Yeah, I've gained back every pound that I've had lost over the years, mm-hmm. and then some, mm-hmm. every single pound. So, was that experience the one that was sort of like, okay, I'm I'm seeing a, a different way now, I'm seeing a different path, or like, was there a different turning point? Because I can only imagine that you were in that, in the mindset that you were surrounded by, and then to bring yourself out of that has to be really challenging. Yes, that was the last time that I said I would be convinced by my parents that I needed to make manipulate my body size into something yeah. smaller. It was the last time. But if I'm going to be very honest with you, and I have not told anyone this, but I was working with an endocrinologist in the last two years because I have like hormonal issues mm-hmm. that exist aside from like dieting or just genetic uh, thyroid issues. And my endocrinologist was wonderful she was like so pro-fat uh, never made weight an issue um, unless I had wanted it to be but she had asked me once like you know would you consider a weight loss medication and I was like um, you know I would think about it and it was on my to-do list to research like two or three of the medications that she had uh, given me to research and I just it would just get you know tossed to the bottom of the list you know week after week and I only finally deleted it from my to-do list like eight months ago. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so, um, it's not linear. Like nothing is, you know, everything kind of comes and goes in these phases and it kind of creeps back in. And I think in moments, you know, phases of life where we maybe feel vulnerable in other areas and then it's so easy for those sort of past vulnerable spots to kind of show up again. So I feel like that's so valid. I appreciate you sharing that. And I love this shift into, and I'm just starting to experience this myself, probably in the last year of finally being in this place where I'm just okay with my body expanding. And that needing to be such um, just an essential and important part of this healing process for myself. And I I really think genuinely for all of us to be okay um, with our bodies shifting as they want to, and not only to be okay with it, but to not have it be the biggest priority in our lives as well. And it really does take a, it's like retraining your brain. It's literally creating new neurotransmitter pathways to think new thoughts. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. And it's so difficult, especially with aging. Like I think about my relationship with exercise uh, shifting in that, you know, it once has been a way that I would move my body in order to manipulate its size, but I've taken such a break from um, physical activity because at the last time I was injured was a few years ago, um, and I've, I've always been, uh, I've always loved lifting weights and feeling very strong and muscular mm. uh, and, like, dense. I love that feeling of, like, density. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and getting older, it's so difficult because, and I'm only in my 30s, so I'm not even like, relatively that old, but uh, noticing the like, uh, difficulty on like, some of my joints, especially my knees and my feet and my ankles. 
And there's like still a fear of like immobility and like this internalized ableism around like, mm. my body is so big that it's also still uncomfortable sometimes to sit in like chairs at a, in a doctor's office waiting room and like um, seats on airplanes are mm-hmm. still tight. And like, I think about my friends and I are traveling. We take like a trip each year and we pick different places. And this year we decided we're going international. We're going to yes. do a Euro trip. <laughs> and we decided on the Amalfi coast in Italy. Beautiful. And it's right. So beautiful. The photos are freaking gorgeous. And then I look at the elevation, like the rocky elevated terrain that's right there on the coast and it, it gives me anxiety just thinking about it. And I notice the ways that I'm like comfortable taking up physical space in my own body and like being fat and having my arms out when it's warm out. Um, in Philadelphia today, we just had like a 70 degree day. So people know, were like, so beautiful. It's gorgeous. But I'm learning that like I'm still also um, shrinking myself in emotional ways mm-hmm. in friendships. Like, I was having anxiety around telling my friends that I really wanted accessibility to be prioritized. And I was worried that my friends would feel like I was a burden if I requested having a hotel room that was on the, on the main floor, um, where we wouldn't have to be walking up two or three or four flights of stairs just to get to our, um, our Airbnb. And I had to challenge myself, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I don't, most folks don't know this, but I, I am finally in therapy, actually, for the first time in my life, like, real committed to long-term therapy. And I love my therapist. We're, like, two months into therapy. And she's helping me learn that I have this fear of taking up space in relationships where I have a fear of, like, disappointing others. And yeah. I have a fear of being a burden on others. And I have a fear of, like, being fat in front of others. In ways where, like, I can make it up four flights of stairs. I'm just going to breathe really loud. Yes. And I'm going <laughs> to sweat. <laughs> and I'm probably going to take a break around, like, the second or third flight of stairs. Like, I could do it. Right. Um, it's just going to take me a little bit longer. Right. You just have to do it your way. So Exactly. It's, it's so funny that, that you gave this specific example. So, <laughs> like, two years ago, I was actually on the Amalfi Coast <gasps> with this this story is gonna I hope this gives you like the support you need oh my god <laughs> because I have a story so I was on the Amalfi Coast and I was actually I was on a yoga retreat and I was certainly the I knew everybody and I was I'm friendly with all these people and you know everyone's cool to that certain extent but you still kind of carry that feeling that you're mm-hmm. that you're expressing where you just are aware of your size and how it's going to play its role in all of the things that are coming up in your day for example and we ended up on this walk where we were trying to get down to the beach from where we were staying and one half of the group went one way and the other half of the group went the other way and the group I was in we walked all the way down so we're declining (laughs) this entire time down this rocky kind of cliffside we get to the bottom and it's a drop cliff we're not even at the we're not even at the bottom of the beach and now there's nowhere else to go except back up So I'm having this, exactly, I'm having this like, okay, I'm with like nine teeny tiny super athletic people and I know I can do this, but it's not going to be done in the same way that everybody else here is going to do it. They're going to be able to go up faster than me. I'm going to need to take breaks. I'm going to be breathing more heavily. And I was going through this process of like preparing myself for the reality that I had to do that my own way. Oh my God. I'm already My God. Oh my God. (laughs) I made it up that damn hill. I I wrote a whole caption about this just like two years ago. (laughs) I made it up that damn hill and I got to the top and I was just like, fuck. But you know what? I got there and everybody else, like, sure. I had my moments where I felt like people were waiting back for me. Like I kept telling people to go ahead and I was fine and just like, let me do my thing. And it was such a process of just like, okay, trying not to demonize myself for just like needing to take longer for like breathing heavier for it being a little bit harder for me and not trying to feel like, you know, my friends who were on the trip were like feeling badly for me or, you know, 
like pitying me or, or right. any of that. And it was such a process, but I did it and I, I did it in my own way, you know? Oh, I'm getting and, so emotional because like, I would never, ever think such horrible thoughts about a friend who would need extra time. I would never think those things right. that I think about myself. Yep. If I were to need a bit extra time or someone to like wait with me mm -hmm. and like slow down a little bit. But that is what happens. Sometimes folks don't realize and they're walking ahead and they leave me behind. And, you know, I don't say anything because I'm like, it's all right. I'll, you know, I'll catch up on the catch up. But, but you're right. If sometimes it feels like a microaggression, like, yeah. guys, just slow the fuck down. Right. Just slow down. Yep. What's on fire? We're exactly. on vacation. Slow down. And I remember like there was one person who was like sprinting and then like stopping and like waiting for me <laughs> to catch up. And it literally did feel like that. I was like, okay, I get it. Like you run fast, <laughs> like, you know, but anyway, so it's just funny to hear you give that example. Cause I, I went through that a couple of my years God, ago in that same that. place and I oh, did survive that, but I so relate to that feeling of just like oh. oh I'm so aware of this and even around people that I love and it feels hard to vocalize I mean I even I feel this with my migraines like I did a, a podcast about this in the first season just like the the ableism of silent um chronic pain and like learning to express my valid needs surrounding my migraines like even if other people aren't going to perceive them as such and the same kind of conversation of like okay I'm going to assume that you think fat is lazy and so then because of that that's going to give you context to what I need but it's just what I need Ugh, it's just what I need what yeah. is that like I'm so comfortable <laughs> being fat in public but like goodness forbid my fat cause a burden to you like yeah, it's almost it's hard, like the right? airplane, right? It's like airline seats. Like mm -hmm. I'm uncomfortable, but goodness forbid, goodness forbid, like the person next to me is also uncomfortable. Oh, totally. It's like you'll yeah. you'll go out of your way to just oh. like keep your arm off the armrest or like right. your hips going under the armchair, and oh. like it's just this constant. Like it's it's just in a world that is innately ableist and in a world that is just like not built for people of size and is not built accessibly, you just get these constant reminders all day, every day that that's a part of who you are. Mm -hmm. And it's like, not that it needs to be a negative thing for you, but when you're constantly getting those reminders that do feel like kind of microaggressions, it's hard sometimes to just oh. stand up for yourself or, or silently stand up for yourself, you know? It's so shitty. That's one of the things that I'm working on in therapy, too, is, like, that standing up for myself. Because it's really hard. Like, one of my... One of the ways that I, like... What's the word? I, like, compensate. That's the word. Mm -hmm. I, like, overcompensate for my fatness. So that, like... So that if someone... If I'm encountering someone who is fatphobic, I overcompensate with niceness. Because... Yeah. Or, like, I'm very charming, I'm very witty for all these reasons. They really help me in social situations to massage away someone's fat phobia. Um, but I'm so good at it that I can't stand up for myself sometimes. Um, I'm not able to meet someone's attitude with attitude. And something that I want to work on is, like, being able to be a bitch when I need to be a bitch. Oh my God. And say, I, I know. No, literally, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing. <laughs> <laughs> and my therapist actually told me that it's, it's still this like internalized misogyny, actually, that sometimes it's literally yeah. just this, this heteropatriarchy forcing women to be kind and folks who've been socialized as women or have a history of experiencing womanhood or femininity of any kind. And that like, compulsion to be liked through being nice and you know the daunting feeling of like well what if i leave this coffee shop and this barista who i will never see for the rest of my life should think badly of me oh god, <laughs> oh god. like the dramatization of like nonsense mm -hmm. interactions 
Oh my God. It's so, it's just so, I'm laughing at myself. Like, so it's just so funny. Like one of the reasons, the biggest reasons, and I don't know if I'll ever return, maybe I will, but the, one of the biggest reasons I deactivated my primary account after so many years was I went through this process where in the beginning it was like this full blown exceptionalism before I understood anything that we're talking about in this podcast today, where I was just sort of this like, fat yoga student and teacher um, who was strong and so shocking everybody, (laughs) like just shocking everybody right out of some of their fat phobia to the point where it became like the entire platform. Then as time went on and I started seeing what was happening and I started vocalizing my pain and my experiences, my trauma, everything that I started to see in this completely different way, just saying to myself, okay, this didn't come from nowhere. There's a reason that y'all are following me the way that you are. Hold on one second. My cat is like trying to take my microphone down. <laughs> Hold on. Totally fine. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> um, what was I saying? Um, that it just, it's no surprise that people, um, were drawn in and were inspired the way that they were. And so I started turning that and saying, well, look, you're inspired because of all of this pain that I've gone through because I am fat and what that has shown me about the world. And as soon as I started sharing my experiences about what it was like to be fat, it was like, shut up (laughs) from the majority. And so I started grappling with this, like, am I like, can I block people? Like, am I allowed to be... (laughs) I was in this whole, like, so programmed to be nice and just way too nice to the point where it was like I had to set such a definite boundary that was actually just leaving the space completely because I allowed myself to be nice for so long that I was being fully taken advantage of and and didn't even see it until it was at the point where I could no longer sustain being nice anymore exactly because that's the whole function of it right the whole purpose is to set up a system so that one gender is entirely exploited it's exploitable right and and easily to manipulate it's like yeah. it's actually a brilliant scam when you think yeah. about it mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it really is it all is oh, <laughs> it all God. honestly is so I'm something else i i really want to talk about and i like mm-hmm. don't want to miss talking about it today is mm-hmm. Uh, I see you post um, the your quote cards often about the morality or the lack thereof um, surrounding food or how we eat or how our bodies take up space or uh, disciplined bodies. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm. So are you talking about how we receive our information about which bodies are allowed to take up space based on the type of food that they eat and the type of perceived health that they have? Yes, exactly. Okay, okay. So in my body image workshops, where I talk a little bit about a more politicized understanding of body image, a more politicized definition of body image, where we intentionally center the conversation around folks of color, we politicize and racialize and understand race as a body image issue. And in this conversation, we talk about how we are actually communicating our hierarchical and oppressive understanding of body worth through language and through the way that we talk about food being good or bad, uh, food being healthy or unhealthy, um, people's uh, health status as being good or bad, um, and all of those things deciding um, people's body size and whether or not that person's body size is actually good or bad and based on whether the body size is good or bad with meaning fat or thin um decide that would be considered desirability politics um so someone's sexual desirability dictating how they're treated in public life through many systems like not just whether or not i want to marry you or fuck you but whether or not i want to hold your hand take you on a date Mm -hmm in public, um, whether or not I want to marry into your family, whether or not I want your family to be present in my family. So like we're thinking like cousins, someone marrying your cousin, Mm -hmm. um, 
whether or not I want this person to be my coworker, whether or not I want this person to be my neighbor, whether or not I want this person to be my employee, whether or not I want this person to uh, be on my community co-op board, um, whether or not I want this person to work at my local grocery store. All of these things are in, involve de- desirability politics. And when we talk about food morality, I want you to think of the words good and bad when you think of morals, like, you know, the little angel and the little devil sitting on your shoulders, good and bad. It's a binary system and it's a binary way of thinking about food. And what do we know about binaries? We want to abolish all binaries, right? Like the gender binary. And the food morality binary is another binary we have to abolish. Because all food, no matter what the food is, as long as it's not poisoned with botulism, has nutritional value. Even if it's a donut, even if it's a, a stale piece of pastry, even if it is a peanut M&M, even if it is kale, even if it is a carrot covered in peanut butter, all food has nutritional value. Even if it's super processed like a Cheeto, even if it's fast food from McDonald's, it has nutritional value and it sustains someone. And a lot of times our conversations about the goodness and badness of food or the healthiness and unhealthiness of food is actually a conversation about class. So we're talking about whether or not something is like um, an organic food or a non-GMO food Mm -hmm. or cage-free or uh, cruelty-free or conflict-free or uh, without preservatives or unprocessed. And a lot of times these are actually euphemisms uh, for, for basically meaning like a more expensive or a more mm-hmm. class or a more high taste food, a high palate food. And when we demonize things like fast food or processed foods, what we're actually doing is um, assimilating into this classist understanding of food morality. That poor people's food is bad and rich people's food is really good. And when we fall into that food morality binary, we also feed into this idea that the people who eat poor people's food are bad, lazy, right? A negative adjective insert here. And people who eat rich people's food are better. They're great. They're reliable. They're um, smarter. Yes, right. (laughs) We assume intellect based on these things. Yeah. And people will say things like, uh, if we just provided better education to these poor people and they would make better food choices and they would be thinner. But all of that conversation is still based on the assumption that people should not be fat. Yep, absolutely. So, yes. So, beautiful summary. (laughs) There's, (laughs) I I have nothing, literally nothing to add to that. But I I love, (laughs) I, I just, I love it though, because it is so, people are not thinking like this. Mm. And I see you put this in such a concise way on your social media that doesn't even take more than a sentence. Like even just this concept that um, what you put in your mouth is not a moral obligation. Either way, you know, your body size, your health is not a moral obligation. And it just, it hit me in this way of like, I just can be free of this. It's just yet another context point of what's informing my understanding of all of these things and how you so eloquently said how all of those things intersect to form how we view the entire world and everything and everyone around us. It's scary. It's scary how many oppressive structures inform desirability, someone's desirability. And even when you think about health, like, it's super gross, not just because we can't see someone's health. Like, it's the same way as gender. Like, you can't see someone's gender just like you can't see someone's health. The only thing you can see, the only thing you can tell by looking at my fat, non-binary body is you can just tell, like, whether or not you have, like, internalized fat phobia or, like, weight bias or, like, internalized transphobia. That's all you can really tell. Because you can't see my gender. I have to tell you what my gender is. You can't see my health status. I would have to tell you what my health status is. And those constructs informing desirability politics really scares me because these are the same belief systems that drive eugenics, that drive white supremacies, 
project of eliminating less favorable folks from the from the majority or from just existence. Uh, eugenics is a terrifying project. Like when I say that word, like I get chills. It's like the boogeyman yeah. for me. Um, and fat phobia and fat fat phobic weight science that is basically talking and trying to figure out um, why fat people exist so that they can invent a cure to prevent fatness. That entire conversation is just a conversation around eugenics because they want right. to eliminate my fat body. And a conversation like that terrifies me because we are absolutely moving in that direction of more and more genetically engineered uh, embryos and, and, and eventually babies, which is terrifying. Right. 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 And the ability to pick and choose. Yeah. No, it is. It's really scary. Um, and it's just so important. It's so important to dismantle. But th that's the thing. It's so wild to me. And I and this is new to me as of the last year, just how it's not just fat phobia, but it's fat phobia and ableism and it's racism. It's all of it. It's transphobia. It's all of it intersecting at once. And like what I see so clearly and what you addressed actually at the beginning of the podcast is how it's so easy to start and stop with what only affects us. So exactly as you said, right, it's bringing the conversation of race into the conversation of fat acceptance and vice versa, that it can't just sort of stop with the the bits and pieces that impact you personally, but actually working um, to dismantle from the most marginalized backwards. Right, because those are the folks who are going to experience literal extermination. Those are the folks who are on the front lines of free medical clinics that are receiving bad fat phobic advice where people are being told no that pain in your abdomen probably isn't something that we should investigate further with a test you're just fat go yep. home and stop eating your poor food and go and try to lose weight and you won't have this problem and then cancer goes undiagnosed and then right. you know someone is dead right I was and this is I not right this is like no, not a one in a million problem right like these are these are issues that affect uh, primarily marginalized black and native folks, mm -hmm. uh, poor folks here in the U.S. But go ahead. No, and just, and I was going to say the lack of accessibility and the lack of resources. I mean, another conversation I wanted to touch on was just how to sort of stand up for yourself when you're at the doctor, like just even coming down to a lot of people not knowing that you can opt not to get weighed, for example, but then also this discussion of access and when you're working to dismantle all of this, but you're going to a health care provider who is racist, who is fat phobic, who is cishet normative, all of these things. It's like, it feels like there are no outlets sometimes to even get the care that everybody deserves to have. You're right. And that's why for me, the conversation about weight bias and the conversation about unlearning fat phobia has to be, has to, at least for me, um, exist this conversation needs to exist in medical spaces because yeah it sucks for me when I get on an airplane and you know I'm I'm really cramped for like a seven hour flight to the west coast but not all of us not all fat people will ever be on a plane like right. what is the marginalized is it what is the marginalized experience that all of us are experiencing and all of us have to go to a doctor and that is where our lives can be on the line, right? Medication is on the line. Whether or not we have an intervention is on the line. Like an intervention, like having a further scan to investigate this pain in my toe. And I, I love the segue into uh, interventions because getting on the scale was the biggest one for me. Yeah, I was avoiding the doctor for years. Um, and I, I was paying all this money and like insurance premiums and never going, which was extremely stupid because now that I don't have health insurance, I just quit my full-time job. <laughs> and now that I don't have it, I'm like, oh, curse curse myself for yeah. not taking advantage all those years. But being able to go into the doctor and say, hey, I prefer not to be weighed today. And having no pushback to that, I was mm -hmm. like, oh, I can go to the doctor whenever I want now because now I know what I what to say. Yeah. And the second intervention that I offer, aside from not get, not having to get on a scale, is, um, I mean, okay, let me, I'll, let me finish the scale one first, actually. So uh, if someone gets pushed back, you can always say, um, okay, can I not face the scale while well, you have to read the number? Mm -hmm. And can you write the number down and not tell me the number? And when you have the chart open in front of me, can you make sure that I'm not seeing the number? Uh, like put a post over it. 
uh, you could just say like, it's really important that I don't see that number. And if you feel comfortable lying, feel free to say like, I'm in recovery or I'm in recovery from an eating disorder or I'm in recovery from disordered eating or I'm just in recovery for body image issues. Um, Feel free to make it up or or tell the truth. And the one reason that it's really important for me not to get weighed is because I worry that having my real BMI on record would affect my ability to even receive insurance. So my premium right now uh, through Obamacare is going to be like $430 a month. Mm -hmm. And it's like double what some of my thin friends who are also in Obamacare pay. Um, and I have, like, no significant health issues other than, like, chronic thyroid issues. And the medication for that is, like, 30 bucks every three months. Like, it's super cheap. Yep. I'm just, again, <sighs> nodding my head yeah. re- relating <laughs> to this experience of being on one medication for my migraine, but the struggle to get health insurance because of my mm-hmm. BMI, which mm-hmm. has now been discredited completely, um, uh, has been so frustrating. Um, and, and especially when the only thing I use my health insurance for mostly is to get my migraine med, but the migraine med is $400 without my health insurance. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I know. <laughs> So it's wild, but I I share the experience of um, uh, the BMI being such an enormous factor when it mm-hmm. uh, plays virtually no factor in my actual life mm-hmm. or my health. And I hear that 100% also impacts folks who are looking for fertility treatment. Yeah. Um, a couple of months ago during fertility or uh, infertility awareness week, there was an account that was specializing, the, that was focusing the conversation around fat fertility, fat, sorry, fat infertility. Mm-hmm. And folks were pouring in with stories about how doctors were using BMI as a sole factor in not wanting to work with them or not wanting to help them conceive. Uh-huh. And it was not based on like whether or not someone could actually conceive. It was just based either on like eugenics, like Right. I don't want this fat person to have a potentially fat baby and, and or this like false assumption that like being fat could lead to like a, a risky pregnancy, which is just not anything other than a fat phobic assumption. Like yeah. it's not actually based in fact. Right. And the second intervention that I wanted to offer for folks oh, who yeah. are having issues with going to a doctor is that if you go to a doctor and you're like, Hey, this, I'm having this pain in my lower back and, um, I want to further investigate. And your doc is like, I just think that you're fat and you need to lose weight and I'm not going to order further tests. Um, you're allowed to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to be okay with that, but I want you to, re- I want you to note in my permanent medical record that I asked you for further testing and you denied doing further testing. <laughs> and you're giggling because you know exactly what's going to happen when you mm-hmm. say that. The doctor will want to avoid a malpractice lawsuit and for liability reasons will order this test that you want to have done. Mm-hmm. So you are allowed to push back. You are allowed to fire your doctor. You're allowed to um, shop for a doctor. You are allowed to treat medical professionals exactly like, you know, a great nail salon. You do not have to go somewhere just because someone told you you have to. Yeah, You just don't. Yeah, absolutely. And what that just sparked, um, another thought as well about, um, you know, write that down in my chart. I want you to note that you have done that. I think another great one, too, is just um, when you feel like you're getting those um, recommendations from your doctor that are based on weight. They're seeing a fat person. They're telling you to lose weight for your back pain or for whatever it is. And I've asked before, what would you say to someone who wasn't fat? would you be giving the same diagnosis? I feel like it's such an easy cop out <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and it's like, make them work harder. <laughs> you're yes. paying, you're paying for the service of your healthcare. And it's not something that's even easy to get or access. I'm like, make them work harder to give you a diagnosis that is real. Agreed. My endocrinologist gets paid almost $300 for a 15 minute appointment. Right. So this person is making like $1,200 an hour. Uh, you can ask them to spend like 
18 more seconds thinking about a better idea for you. <laughs> yeah, totally. No, I love it. I love it. because It's one of the scariest places. And there's there are too many instances of fat people not going to the doctor at all, as, as you addressed, because of that of this very valid fear um, of experiencing microaggressions when you're at the doctor and then also just not being believed or taken seriously. And I think, you know, even coming back to what you were mentioning about um, uh, fat people and, and infertility, I feel like they're another part that of course is playing into that is just this innate thought of again like the laziness factor it's like oh if you can't take care of yourself how are you going to take care um, of your pregnant self or mm -hmm. of this child mm -hmm. all these like gross assumptions about mm. well you're already so fat are you sure you want to get even fatter right oh my god mm -hmm. yep it's like never ending no <laughs> It's never ending. It's so wild. We could talk forever. Oh, I love everything that we've discussed tonight. Is there anything else that you feel like you want to share? Mm. For folks who are grappling with finding their body lovable or desirable or beautiful, if it feels like that is such a huge leap to make, a great reframe that I like to offer is just to find gratitude in your body. And finding gratitude doesn't mean that you're finding a superficial reason why it's great or or wonderful like why it, the way it looks great um but something that makes you feel grateful to have this exact body uh something that it does for you that is very unique to your body and a great reframe that i like to offer which might not feel great to folks who may be adopted or are trans or experience gender dysphoria or have cutoffs from their family due to abusive dynamics or for any other reason. I like to think of my body as an heirloom and something that I've inherited because my body is supposed to be exactly this fat. I come from a family of fat people and our bodies have survived British colonization. Our bodies have survived the partition of South Asia. Our bodies have, my, my lineage has survived colonization and genocide and famine and my body is exactly this fat for very political and very important reasons it is supposed to look exactly like this and i find gratitude in what my body does for me and surviving every day thank you so much that was so beautiful i'm tearing you're up welcome. you're very welcome it was such a pleasure to speak with you tonight. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking with me. And will you please just share for my audience just where everybody can follow you and learn from you and come to seminars and all of that. <laughs> it was so lovely to be here. Thank you so much again for inviting me. And everyone can find me uh, on Instagram. That's where I create and post a lot of my political education content. And I'm on Instagram as the fat sex therapist. And if you want to book me or if you want to see upcoming um, speaking events that I'll be at, public and private, I will have them posted on my website. And my website is sonalier.com. And that is spelled S-O-N-A-L-E-E-R.com. Awesome. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for having me. Hi friends, Dana here. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Deep Dive. If you want more radical truth, make sure you subscribe. You can also keep up with me across social media at Dana Falsetti or visit my website, danafalsetti.com to find workshops, speaking engagements, or take an online class. See you next time.